the series we're giving this lunchtime is, is Chazal and the Age of Empires, and of course we're focusing on the Talmudic period. Uh, who was here at this talk last Thursday? Oh, fabulous. So we've had quite a few people uh, return, and we've got a couple of new people. I, I can't really go over that material, but I can contextualize where we got up to so that we know uh, what we're discussing. Of course, I won't draw the whole timeline of Jewish history here because I'm sure you're all familiar with the period that we are talking about, uh, the period that we are covering in this series uh, with a focus on Chazal. Chazal are the sages. Chazal is an acronym, Chachameinu Zichronam Livracha, our sages of blessed memory. And it's a type of mnemonic that scholarship uses, Jewish scholarship uses to indicate the sages of the Talmudic period and all their different variety and events. They call that Chazal. So it's a focus on really the people that in this period, emerging from the Second Temple period, before we go into the uh, greater dispersal of the Gaonic period, this 500-year period, and remember that when we talk about Jewish history, we say, okay, 500 years, it's like this slot, but really, we also have to remind ourselves that 500 years is a fair chunk of time. And if we're standing here now, thank you, Marianne, and we go back 500 years, so we're talking about a period of history that's equivalent to, say, from 1500 till today, and we all know just how much has happened in 1500, since 1500, who was at the Sunday morning talk on the last 500 years of Jewish history, right? So you know that that's pretty packed. And so we're talking about no lesser period in terms of time, and the events are just astonishing. Here's zero, here's 500. And we, we emerged, uh, what, what we basically covered last week, I wanted to do a little bit more, but we basically covered uh, up to about here in that framework. And importantly so, we could have spent several talks just on that period, and we covered the headlines and main events leading up to this tremendous cataclysm that happened as a result of our great revolt against the Romans, and that was, of course, in the year 70 with the destruction of the temple by Titus. Everybody remember that we basically got up to there. Some people are actually going like this, and some people are actually going like this. <laughs> we, I believe we got up, we can listen to the tape, but I believe we got up to round about the destruction of the temple. So let's just review just a couple of important points that are going to be influential on what we're about to discuss now. If you recall, we discussed both last Tuesday night and as well last Thursday, is the fact that during the late Second Temple period, uh, there were definitely emerging two distinct pictures of what Judaism could look like. And that itself had many sub-factions, but the two dominant camps, the two dominant pictures that were struggling not only for religious but for political influence in the Jewish world, were the, what we call the Sadducees, the Tzdukim, the Sadducean faction, which was very focused on the temple and on the priests and on sacrifices, purity, impurity. The Sadducees did not believe, and this is an important point because it's a recurring theme often in Jewish history in relation to many different types of factions within the religious Jewish world. The Sadducees did not believe in this thing that the 
other camp was going on about, the camp of the what we call the, the Pharisaic camp. In fact, that's a, a word that's, a, that's really a bit pejorative. It's more applied because of its discussion in the New Testament and other documents, although the Talmud itself refers to the sages of the, Talmudic, of the early Talmudic period as Perushim, which is the Hebrew of the Pharisaic class. But this is a, this is, uh, these are the ones that went on to become what we know as Chazal, what we know as the rabbis. The Sadducees were unconcerned with this thing called the Oral Torah. They did not believe that there was a, an oral dimension handed down with the written word of God. They were literalists, fundamentalists, if you like. We see this, as I said, as a recurring theme in Jewish history. It was revived later in the 8th and 9th centuries, big time, through the Karaim, the Karaites, who refused once again to acknowledge the Oral Torah. And even much later, in the 18th and 19th centuries, many of the reform movements within Judaism were trying to, uh, in a sense, deconstruct the traditions that had arisen. That's possibly a slightly different project. But the Sadducees did not believe in the dimension of the Oral Torah. And as a corollary, and this might seem like some sort of obscure side point, but it becomes a little crucial when you look at it as an example of the different ways in which humanity and the world were being approached by the Sadducees. They did not believe in certain fundamental doctrines that became given in later Judaic thinking. They did not believe, for example, in the resurrection of the dead. And they didn't really have a sort of messianic picture that was emerging uh, through uh, much of the popular perceptions of Judaism that were happening at this time. So that's one point we have to remember that the Sadducees and the Pharisaic class, who were, as I said last week, much more in touch really with the populace, were battling it out. Uh, but by the time you get to the destruction of the temple, it becomes very clear which of those two camps has lost. Uh, there's no question that after the temple is destroyed, we don't really hear very much about the Sadducees. Very, very influential faction within Judaism, but <laughs> when you've got no temple, you don't have much to say if you're a Sadducee. And the rabbis therefore saw them, and when I say the rabbis, and I touched upon this last week, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that that itself was a homogenous class of people, and it most certainly wasn't. There are many, many examples of the way in which Judaism at the time, despite what people want to tell you, sometimes when you read today, you read religious histories or history books, and all history books are good, and even the ones that are not good are good, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't read and read widely, a great variety of perspectives, but you should be aware that there is a tendency in history books that emerge from a religious framework is that they try and homogenize this entire period. No one's disagreeing with everyone. Things have always been the way that should be. The rabbis, you know, they, they're the ones that have the authentic tradition and that everybody else was just wrong and yay, the rabbis won. It's not like that. There are many, many examples and you know some of what they are about how many fundamental institutions within Judaism had not yet even really taken form and there were great debates about what they should look like. 
even within the rabbinic camp and those who adhered to this principle that we'll discuss in a moment called the Oral Torah. The other very, very important thing we need to remind ourselves once we're looking at the picture of the Jewish world just after the destruction of the temple is that we have already developed an extensive diaspora and that there are some very large and powerful diaspora communities that see Israel as the centre of the Jewish world but, and therefore in a sense are obedient to some of the religious and spiritual guidance coming out of Israel and Israel was seen as a very important centre but they were very happy in their own dynamic communities and were developing them as independent although connected Jewish communities we have this thing called the Gola we have a thing called the diaspora therefore as you can imagine whereas the destruction of the temple was devastating on all of world Jewry at the time it was much more keenly felt in the land of Israel than it was in communities outside of Israel which really had their own thing going on anyway the temples destroyed that's tragic that's a shame let's sit down let's commemorate that but it doesn't affect us on a day-to-day -day basis nevertheless with the destruction of the temple we still need to reformulate much of what we actually believe is going on. So there are two very important things. Now, <laughs> the, uh, the temple was destroyed, was destroyed by Titus. And Titus went back shortly after to uh, to uh, go back to Rome and have his famous victory marches. You see, and we just need to tweak sometimes our understanding because people can think, oh, we make a big deal about the destruction of the temple. We make a big deal about the capturing and conquering of Judea, of Iudea, this troublesome province of the Romans. But really, when you look at it from the Roman perspective, the Roman Empire was ginormous. It had a lot of big concerns. It ruled over a lot of different people. And whilst it might be very important and exciting for us, the conquest of Iudea and these troublesome Jews and the destruction of the temple and the capturing of Jerusalem, you know, maybe just a sort of like a secretarial note for the Romans. It wasn't really, you know, this thing. That's not correct. That's not the case. It's not just us that were thinking this was a big deal. The Romans thought it was a very big deal. If you look at the Roman Empire and you see the crucial importance of the land of Israel and where it sits in terms of the geopolitical aims and concerns of the Roman Empire, particularly in its buffer status against the Parthian Empire that is happening in the east, the other big domain of influence that we didn't really touch on last week and we probably won't touch on that much today but next week we'll go into in some detail and if you realize just how much hassle we caused the Romans then you'll realize that it was a big deal they minted coins Iudea capta the famous coins that some of you may have seen with the palm tree and the um, iconic 
woman lamenting. That's, the, that's Zion lamenting over the destruction of the temple. The Romans printed this because they thought it was a big deal. Everybody knows that the Arch of Titus, that famous monument that was erected a little later to honour Titus's uh, conquest of Judea and Jerusalem, contains the famous, you know, the picture of them carrying off the menorah, and everybody thinks, oh, that's the big monument to the capturing and conquest of Judea. It's a symbol, but it's not the big monument. What is the big monument to the capturing of Judea that was established by the Flavian empires, by Vespasian and his son Titus? Titus, of course, went on to become emperor after Vespasian. What is the big monument? The Colosseum. Very good. With the proceeds of that conquest, not just with all of the valuables that they had plundered from the temple itself, but through the entire conquest, they were able to fund the construction of the Colosseum, about you know, half of which is still standing in Rome today. That was the testament to that conquest. The Flavians made a big deal of it. Not only Vespasian, not only Titus, but even when Titus's brother... Uh, Domitian became emperor afterwards, there were, it was a big deal. In fact, the Flavians almost based their entire cred on the Iudea Capta. That is also why, that is also why after the death of Domitian, and when I say the death, I don't mean that he, you know, died peacefully in an old age home. Um, I mean that obviously like so many Roman emperors, they didn't like him, they killed him. But after Domitian's death and the rise of a new emperor who was not a Flavian. That, of course, was those familiar Roman history. It's okay, I'm not expecting you to be experts on Roman. Just thought it's Nerva. Nerva comes to the throne, and in fact, he has to go out of his way to show how anti Flavian he is. So he scraps those coins and he actually scraps the uh, Fiscus Iudeus that was placed upon not just the Jews of Judea, but all Jews in the Roman Empire had to pay a tax every year to support the Temple of Jupiter. That was one of the humiliating conditions imposed upon the whole Jewish world that was scrapped by Nerva. After the conquest, but just going back to the conquest, just to show you the level at which the Romans were pleased with themselves about the capture of Judea, they closed the Temple of Janus. The Temple of Janus, this famous temple in Rome in, that was only ever opened during times of war. It was closed during times of peace. And they closed it for the last time. It was subsequently opened, but never closed again, because the Roman Empire almost saw the capture of Judea as a peak point in their development. So we start to see interesting developments happen. And I, it's really... The information, the key to understanding it is really to, to order it in the correct perspective to realise its importance. As I keep saying, and as I'm sure you're aware already, we could spend uh, an entire year meeting every week just on this period here, the remainder of that century, and it's many fascinating ideas. So when we read and we look into things, we want to have an idea of what is actually the key headlines and what is more detailed. This idea of the growing diaspora is a very, very, very influential concept in Jewish history, but sometimes we overlook one very, very important facet that has been developing throughout this century and that I want to touch on before we go into the guts of what happens next, because we have quite a lot to cover today.
And that is, much to the chagrin of the Romans, much to the perplexion of your average Roman Caesar or administration, Judaism was becoming quite popular. What I mean by that is that, and here's another example, here's another example of an idea that we think today has always been some sort of rigid institution, but back then was much more fluid. Many, many people in the Roman Empire were converting to Judaism. And they were converting to Judaism because they saw in Judaism a superior type of religion. If you are actually living in the Roman Empire and most of the people around you are eating and worshipping cockroaches and or have a vast range of polytheistic pagan options and suddenly you're presented with a faith spiritual system that has this incredible text and a God that is not just another God, but the God, Chabum, and all sorts of interesting rituals and, and, and an emphasis on being nice and justice. And you look at this document and you see this nation, that was, you say, I want to be part of that story. That sounds like something much, much more elevated than what I'm currently experiencing. And many, many people some historians, not all, but some of the most extreme of the historians and scholars that want to look at this have estimated that perhaps, perhaps up to 10% of Rome's population itself was in some way either converted to Judaism or Jewish or sympathetic to the Jewish cause in that way. But as you would know, as you would know, being Jewish is not always easy. And becoming Jewish is not a simple process. There was, of course, one thing that however liberal the rabbis at the time were making conversion, there was one thing that they were not compromising on, and that, of course, was circumcision. Which, of course, the Romans like the Greeks before them, perhaps not as hardcore as the Greeks before them, but saw as barbaric. Nevertheless, that was a condition of entry into the Jewish people, and many, yet, even so, many, many men underwent circumcision in order to become Jews. So part of the swelling of the Jewish populations is due to this popularity. Once we understand that, once we understand that, we understand the immense significance of the career of Paul, originally called Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul of Tarsus is not someone who's normally discussed as a dominant figure in Jewish history, but his influence is immense. He was a student of a very, very great rabbi that emerges. Remember I spoke last Tuesday night very briefly, and we haven't really, and maybe even last week, here we see the rise of these particular schools within rabbinic thinking of the oral Torah, the most famous of which is Hillel. Hillel is a contemporary of... It was very good, very good. Very good. Very good. Hillel is, of course, a contemporary of Shammai, and their great discussions form many of the debates of the Mishnah in the Talmudic period. But in fact, 
Uh, politically, of course, Hillel was a contemporary of Herod. But Hillel's descendants became, took on a position that we call the Nasi. They were the head of the newly constituted council, the Sanhedrin, this council of rabbinic leaders that were formulating many of the decisions that were going on to influence Jewish life. And the grandson of Hillel was a very influential rabbi called Rabban Gamliel. And Saul of Tarsus was a student of Rabban Gamliel. So therefore, when you, we can understand that part of the great pressure that was placed upon the rabbis, remember, what is the, what is the most distinguishing feature of first century Palestine that everybody talks about? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Cracks me up. Uh, in Jewish history. What do we talk about? In first century Palestine, we talk about factionalism, and we talked about some of those factions last week, the Zealots and the Moderates, as well as the Sadducees and the Rabbis. And I just realized at the end and I, that another faction, for example, it were the uh, people that we now know, once again, not a homogenous block, different sects, but a faction that we, a group that we now know as the Essenes, and the general picture is, but it's not as warm and fluffy as this sounds, the general picture until recently in scholarship is that these guys are more or less sort of like hippie dropouts. Everybody was working out how they're going to respond to the Roman occupation and the Essenes are going, let's just chill out, let's go and live by the Dead Sea in some caves and just hang out, be hippies, smoke a bit of weed and just let everything relax. But in fact... Uh, not only is that not quite the case with the Essenes, they were a pretty hardcore cult. They were based near the Dead Sea and they did have a political theory of not being involved in that whole project, but religiously they were very cultic and they were very hardcore. There is quite a bit of revision in very recent scholarship about the picture that we have of the Dead Sea Scrolls as having been written by the Essenes and who has read some of the material in the Dead Sea Scrolls, who's been exposed to some of that. So you will know that what is developing in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as fantastically important for us, copies of various books of the Bible. When we spoke about Isaiah in this room the other day, we spoke about that. But as well, there are all their own writings which are apocalyptic and eschatological in nature and show basically a Gnostic picture, this big fight that's going on between good and evil and the Essenes are developing this weapon that is going to win the war, this weapon called the teacher of righteousness. You can imagine some Marines writing that on a big nuke, you know, that they're going to send the teacher of righteousness. <laughs> So this, this idea that we were at the end of times was very, very, uh, the country was saturated with that. Recent, very recent scholarship has revised the authorship of the Dead Sea Scrolls and may not, we say now that it may not necessarily specifically have been the Essene cults, it may in fact have been written by certain mystical factions within the Sadducean camp that were more responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I'll leave you to explore that scholarship. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls, they are from that period and of course, famously, they are from the Qumran area right near the Dead Sea. So 
with all of that, and the other faction, of course, is the Nazarenes. You have a growing number of people running around saying, we're not waiting for the Messiah anymore, he's come. It was Jesus of Nazareth, he was crucified by the Romans here, and bada-boom, bada-boom, bada-boom. Very, very important to remember that the early Christian church was a sect of Judaism. So we realize that the first big moment of shift for the Christian church is when, through the teachings of Saul of Tarsus, who was a student of Rabban Gamliel and was one of a group of students charged by the Nasi with going around preventing communities from coming under Nazarene influence, and then, of course, had his famous epiphany on the road to Damascus, and that's the subject of another talk, clearly in a totally different institution. <laughs> it is Saul of Tar, and Saul then changed his name to Paul, and all this, but it is Paul's advocation of the idea that you can partake in the covenantal relationship of the God of Israel, you can effectively partake in the destiny of Israel, and all that the Bible promises you without circumcision and without having to keep the commandments of the Torah. There are a couple that they want you to do, but on the whole, all of those requirements, that's law, and law has been superseded by grace, etc., etc., etc. I'm not here to convert you all to Christianity, so I'm not going to go into that theology. That, of course, meant that the Christian church was now in a position to uh, be far more amenable to people who wanted that Judeo, that Abrahamic religion, but without having to go through all of those hardships. Everybody follow? It's a very, very influential shift within history. Of course, it wasn't immediately successful for the Christian church because the Christians were, at this time, and certainly for the next 150, 200 years, deeply persecuted within the Roman Empire. They were an illegal sect within the Roman Empire because after so long, we actually had a fairly good lobby in Rome and we didn't like the Christians and so the Roman Empire didn't either. So, but that's another story, as I'm sure you're aware, but we need to know that as a background thing. And I know that some people in my history talks so far have actually complained that I haven't talked about Jesus, so there it is. <laughs> we actually... Actually, many of you would be aware, and I, in case there are Christians in the audience, I don't want to offend anyone, but many of you would be aware that um, where the, the historical Jesus himself is, uh, is a composite picture of some controversy. And once again, another talk. I need to spend a minute on uh, the project, more than a minute, uh, really the highlight of what I... It hasn't been half an hour. I have not been speaking for half an hour already. That's impossible. Impossible. <laughs> the, big, the big thing that I really wanted to talk about today was the influence and impact of the project of Yavna. Uh, Yavna, as you know, was the reconstruction uh, of the uh, religious and spiritual life as a centre after the destruction of Jerusalem. We know, of course, for those who are sitting there confused, just before I, I get on, remember that Yohanan ben Zakkai had basically one Yavna 
to as a uh, sort of an autonomous town where the rabbis could collect and restart that whole project again after the destruction of Jerusalem and effectively reformulate Judaism. Uh, but while the, and, and incidentally, those of you who are sitting there wondering whether I'm going to say this, uh, you are aware that that whole story with Yochanan ben Zakkai and Vespasian comes to us via the Talmudic traditions. However, if you read Josephus, you get the same story, but with a different person as the hero of that story. It's not Yochanan ben Zakkai, it's Josephus. <laughs> Josephus had a pretty strong opinion of himself in a number of different ways. Uh, those of you who find humor in Josephus, and I think it's funny, even though he didn't intend it to be funny, should read the section during the great siege of Jerusalem when Josephus offers to Vespasian that he'll go to the walls and try and negotiate these guys to surrender. And Josephus barely escapes with his life after that experience. They see Josephus. Till today, till today, till this moment, there are still many, many people in the world, some scholars who were friends of mine who still talk about Josephus as the great traitor to the Jewish people as though it happened yesterday and they can barely say the name without spitting it out. So how much more so was it at the time? And you can imagine Josephus going to the walls, guys, um, the Romans were... <coughs> All right, but of course, the destruction of the temple didn't end the persecutions and of course we know that the zealots who had caused so much hassle, and wherever you've got zealots in Jewish history, disaster is never far from around the corner. <laughs> but they eventually all got pursued and rounded up, and eventually, of course, ended up holed up in their last place of refuge in 73, which was Masada. And that's when the Romans, of course, camped there, and eventually they, got, they built that massive ramp, you've probably seen it, and they go up and everybody kachunged themselves. All right. Uh, and just to put that in perspective, that Masada is part of the Great Revolt. It goes from the destruction of the temple, no, from before, from 66 to 73. But Yavne is a phenomenal project that begins to embark on a journey that really, in a sense, Judaically, takes us up until today. The oral Torah was never written down. If such a thing existed, it never was written down. There was a belief that we have a written document, which is the Bible, which is the Torah, and that all things pertaining to life that emerged from the Torah's guidance were dynamically interpreted. That is actually the ideal in Judaism. And so some monumental decisions were taken over the period between 100 and 200 that were to deeply affect that picture. The encounter that we'd had with Greek civilization two or three centuries before had now really taken root in the way we looked at knowledge. And so the rabbis were beginning to do something that had never really happened in Judaic thought before. They were beginning to systematize. They were beginning to create systems very, very Greek exercise. And if you look at the Bible, it's not really systemic. But you've got a huge body of common law, a huge body of precedent and application of law, 
and that the principles of that need to be distilled and that knowledge needs to be recorded. But still, there was a tremendous hesitancy to write it down. The rabbis, in their brilliance, saw that once you write down a faith system, once you write down a code, it becomes congealed. And very soon, the oral Torah will become another written Torah. This is what has happened to us over the last couple of millennia. Although within the religious world today, a text like the Shulchan, a very synthetic text like the Shulchan Aruch, will be seen as a manifestation of the oral Torah, or Maimonides' Yad Chazakah Mishnah Torah will be seen as a manifestation of the oral Torah, it has nevertheless become a written Torah. And every word and every letter is uh, obeyed accordingly. The rabbis never had that picture. Don't write down your dynamic interpretations because it's meant to be fluid. It is anchored in the written Torah. Everybody follow that picture? However, as I said last week, it's not a homogenous block. And the rabbis that are emerging, remember the two rabbis that took Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai out of Jerusalem to meet Vespasian, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah and Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkunus, and I spoke briefly last week how they really represented different classes within the rabbis, what we might call broadly the patrician class, the landed gentry, and the plebeiate class. Those factions became dominant within... Uh, and, and let me give you a very quick example of how that works. Uh, who is familiar with the... Who is familiar with the Hebrew word dvash? Honey, yeah? There is a big discussion in the Talmud along the very lines I said about what dvash means. It means honey, but what sort of... What do they mean by honey? So Eliezer ben Herkonos will tell you that dvash, and this actually became the dominant view, that dvash means the pulp from dates. He actually, his family owned extensive date plantations and that for him was when the Torah says Eretz Zavat Chalav Udvash, that's Dvash. But this actually has halachic impact, this definition. Whereas Yehoshua ben Hananiah, who obviously was from the unlanded class and liked to find things just in the wild, obviously understood Dvash to be the honey of bees. So just to give you an example about how some of the halachic discussions and right throughout the Talmudic period depend on these class differences. The dominant, the do, there's a dominant figure that begins to emerge after the destruction of the temple and is really the uber product of Yavna and goes on to become the dominant figure of the whole of the Mishnaic period. When I say the Mishnaic period, which is where I wanted to get up to today and I will get up to today, uh, is going to end here just after 200. But there's a figure that begins to emerge here. Oh my gosh, we've got so much to talk about today and I've got about eight minutes to do it. Begins to emerge here today the most famous mature-age student in Jewish history, and you all know who I'm talking about, wakes up one morning, probably a Sunday, at about the age of 40, and realizes that he knows, doesn't even know how to read and write. He hates rabbis. He thinks they're absolutely ridiculous. But nevertheless, he falls in love with a woman 
who says, I'm only going to marry you if you go off and study, so off he goes. I'm talking, of course, about Akiva ben Yosef. So Akiva, this itinerant shepherd, ignoramus, illiterate, wanders off and he goes to Yavna to look for a teacher. And the first person, he learns, he learns how to read by a rabbi, a very nice, warm, fluffy rabbi called Nachumish Gamzu, very philosophical, Zen type of guy. But, you know, after a couple of years, he's not giving Akiva what he really knows because Akiva by this time realizes that he's brilliant. And so he goes, for example, to Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanus, the great Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanus, the great student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that we spoke about, and he says to him, I'd like to learn with you. And he goes, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen because you can't afford me. Uh, and frankly, I need students to be self-supporting because I'm so demanding as a teacher that you would not be able to study with me. You'll be too distracted by how you're going to support yourself. So he goes to Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya says to him, look, I, I, don't ta I don't charge, I teach for free, but really, look at all these kids that need to... You think I'm really going to turn around and start teaching a 40-year-old, 42-year-old guy? Like, I respect your project, but I'm actually really, really busy. So Akiva begins his, uh, his teaching, his study, seriously, with the famous Rabbi Tarfon, who is somewhere between those other two, and... It's extremely interesting when you see, by the time you get to the mid to late 90s, by the time that Nerva comes to the throne, after 20, 24 years, Akiva has become a giant already and is taking part in the great delegations that the Jewish people were sending to Rome uh, on the, after the death of Domitian to try and get some relief from some of the decrees that were still applying across the Jewish world. Uh, in brevitas extremis, uh, it, th that's just a gateway that I just want to highlight something, and that is when I spoke about Akiva's wife, Rachel, <coughs> she is one of several astonishing women throughout this period. I won't uh, touch upon the... No, I don't use the expression, touch upon the women. I won't... Um, <laughs> I won't discuss the women too extensively now because uh, those of you who look at the program know that I'm giving lots of opportunities to speak about women throughout Jewish history, but there are several extremely important and impactful women uh, throughout this period, and I will be talking about them uh, in terms of politically, you know, uh, Queen Helena of uh, Adi Ebony, those of you who are familiar, and when I talked about the conversion to Judaism, that's the Mediterranean, here's the land of Israel. There's this small principality over here called Ediebony that suddenly converted to Judaism uh, through the, uh, the Queen Mother, really, and she then has this tremendous relationship with the land of Israel. Her sons actually fought in the defense of Jerusalem. It's a very famous story and hugely important history. Her tomb can still be visited in Jerusalem. People like Imma Shalom, the archetypal Jewish mother married to uh, Rabbi Yezer, who uh, both of those rabbis, both of those rabbis eventually got put into Cherem. They eventually got excommunicated, those two rabbis who were the great students of Yochanan ben Zakkai, for fascinating reasons. And perhaps I will go into this for 10 seconds because it's instructive and illustrative. Rabbi Yezer ben Hirkonos was famously excommunicated in the episode of the Oven of Achnai. <coughs> You're familiar with the oven? Who is familiar with the oven of Achnai? Great. So you know that the oven of Achnai is not just an interesting story, it's illustrative of what the rabbis were trying to achieve. The oven of Achnai was an oven that was declared 
impure by the rabbis, and uh, Eliezer ben Herkon said that it was pure, and this debate went on, and he brought miracle after miracle after miracle, right up until the point where a heavenly voice comes out and says, actually, he's right, and the rabbis said, we don't care, because the Torah is decided down here. We are the custodians of the oral dynamic interpretation of the Torah. We say what's going on. Thank you, God, for your opinion, but we're not going that way today. And to emphasize that point, they, put, they excommunicated him. The excommunication of Yehoshua ben Hanania was for different reasons. It was to do with the calendrical calculations, to do with when Yom Kippur was going to be. But eventually, Rabban Gamliel became deposed and uh, was replaced by... Uh, Elazar ben Azaria. If you read the Haggadah, when we sit at the Seder, you will see all those guys sitting around. Remember the story of the rabbis that discussed the Seder all night? That is those rabbis. And you'll see the names. The historical veracity of that story we're not entirely sure of, but it is, but it is illustrative of, uh, of what was going on. However, the really important deal is that in 115 to 117, there's a new emperor on the throne, and that, of course, is Trajan. Trajan is a huge expansionist. The Roman Empire really reached its biggest point uh, under the emperorship of Trajan. He actually was the first one who had the Beitzim to take on the Parthians seriously, and he made some very significant incursions into the Parthian Empire. But, as always, there was trouble and conflict, and in the course of which he rode roughshod over several Jewish interests, particularly in the Holy Land, and that caused the Jews to revolt in various places. The revolt, which we call the Second Revolt of the Jews, that happened under Trajan, is often overlooked in Jewish history, but it was very, very impactful, and it led, in fact, to the genocide of several Jewish communities, Cyprus and in Mesopotamia, but particularly devastating on the community of Alexandria. The community of Alexandria that had been, as I said, the New York of its day, this huge cosmopolitan dynamic community in Egypt, basically Trajan's war against the Jews put an end to Alexandria. We see that as a second revolt. It was brutally put down. And, of course, local populations were not short on taking the chance to express themselves against Jewish communities anti-Semitically. But, of course, it is here. It is here, and uh, tra the, the great tragedy for us right now is that I'm not able to talk about this uh, at the length that I wanted to, or to uh, really, you can already see how pressed we are for, uh, for time to give over these talks. I know that everybody has to be out of here at 1.15, that's correct, right? So uh, normally we might take Q&A, but I will go for a few more minutes because I really need to lay down the essence of what happened in 132 to 135, which is an event that we still feel today we still feel today. Uh, in the 120s, Hadrian comes to the throne. Uh, what is the most famous monument to Hadrian in the Roman Empire? His wall, which still divides. It's still there, right, in, in the north of Britain. That shows us that Hadrian, not quite like Tra Trajan, was an expander, but Hadrian was a big consolidator. He was even happy to put up walls to say, this is where the Roman Empire goes to and no further. 
there was an indication throughout the 120s, and this is a very touchy subject in uh, Jewish history and in its scholarship because scholars are still coming to terms with exactly what happened here, and there are many, many views. So I point the way to the headlines of the discussions, and you can go into this if it interests you, but there for some reason throughout the 120s, we were gaining the impression that Hadrian was going to allow us to rebuild the temple. Hadrian began as an emperor whose policy towards the Jews was not actually unfavorable. And that promise was, whether or not we over-exaggerated our response to that and misread things, or as some scholars believe, or whether in fact Hadrian had actually uttered the words, I'm going to let the Jews build the temple. You know, I mean, you know what it's like to be emperor, right? I mean, you know, if, look, 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 if you, if you wake up in the morning and say to your family over breakfast, um, you know, I'm going to let the Jews rebuild the temple, uh, they'll just say to you, keep taking your medication and everything's fine. But if you're the emperor of, the Ro of Rome and you wake up in the morning and say to your family over breakfast, I think I might let the Jews rebuild the temple, that is a massive effect because your word is absolute law. If at four o'clock in the afternoon you turn around and go, you know what, maybe I won't let the Jews build the temple, that's going to have a devastating effect. It was is argued by some scholars that really the turning point against Hadrian, why we fell out with Hadrian was because of the reneging of what we believed was going to be that particular promise, but the answer is probably much more complex and broad. What we do know, however, is by the late 120s, Hadrian definitely was advocating a policy or several policies that were anti-Jewish. Uh, Hadrian saw the Jewish people as a source of deep unrest and he saw the centrality of Jerusalem and this constant conflict over the Holy Land. We did not let go of messianic aspirations entirely. Obviously, we were seriously still interested in establishing our own autonomous state. Uh, but there was other religious ferment that was happening. Hadrian started to develop an anti-Jewish policy and put that into law. And famously, of course, the first really, really big one is that he said, we're not going to have any more circumcision. I'm tired of this. We're not having any more circumcision. You can't. I mean, this is from an emperor that was throwing people to lions in the Colosseum every Tuesday and Sunday. And, uh, but no, circumcision is barbaric. And, and I know how to get rid of Judaism. That's their key. Now, people go to the grave. By this time, Rabbi Akiva is still alive. Rabbi Akiva is an immense giant figure. Because, and uh, it's important to understand it's that Rabbi Akiva is not just important historically when we say he's a giant figure. He, he has immense... Uh, he has a whole approach to the way that he is interpreting the Torah to create this dynamic oral law. He is anchoring the oral law itself and the traditions inside the text of the Torah and showing people how you derive the oral law from the written Torah, analyzing every formal component of every letter, but using as his guiding principle, I know, I know, I know, I know. 
I've extended the license on that slightly. For example, when he says that he was Doresh every et in the Torah and so on, and every tug, and we don't know exactly to what extent he did that, but he definitely affected a shift in the relationship between the oral and the written Torah, attempting to show a symbiosis between the two. But his guiding principle was kvod ha'adam, the dignity of the human being. This became a central principle of the Mishnaic approach to life. We don't rebel because of a ban on circumcision, and we don't rebel because of the next ban, which was on Shabbat. But the public teaching of Torah is the one that caused Akiva to back the Bar Kokhba rebellion. And of course, Bar Kokhba emerges to be, well, you know, we call, him free, we call him freedom fighter. I don't know that the Romans would have used that term. But uh, Bar Kokhba emerges and we know, and I don't need to go over this history for you right here because it's all very famously documented. You can look that up, obviously, because but we're just dealing with the primary headlines. Bar Kokhba's initial successes were significant. They did recapture Jerusalem. And they had tremendous military success at the beginning, and that allowed them to gather together a big populist army. But Hadrian's response was nothing short of total. Remember, Hadrian's a consolidate. He's not going to have any of this nonsense happening within the Roman Empire, specifically within a country like Iudea that had been captured only and conquered only 60 years earlier. And the force that Hadrian brought to crush that rebellion was massive and it was extreme and it ended at Betar. Because at Betar, even conservative <laughs> historians will tell you that something hundreds of thousands, if not up to half a million uh, Jewish fighters died. Uh, Hadrian's Influence on Judea was profound. The name of Judea was changed to Palestina at that point. He set up in Jerusalem Aeolia Capitolina, a big temple to uh, Jupiter in the center of Jerusalem. But Hadrian dies, and the, uh, oh, and of course, significantly, significantly, uh, Hadrian then persecutes the intellectual classes. Many, many rabbinic figures, including the very, very aged Rabbi Akiva, were martyred in gruesome ways. Rabbi Akiva's flesh was stripped from his body, uh, and you cannot, we ca it's hard to imagine the awfulness uh, of that persecution. The liturgy that we read on Yom Kippur, by the way, about the, the ten martyrs, the, which are from the Hadrianic persecutions, is a much later construction. Not all of those rabbis were living at the same time. People should not read that as historical, but it reflects something that was at the time a historical reality. Rabbi Akiva, however, had great students who went into hiding at the time, but they emerged. The house of the Nasi emerged after the death of Hadrian, and we see a flourishing and a revival throughout the second half of the second century under emperors such as Antoninus Pius and the famous Marcus Aurelius and Commodus, who actually had much more favorable attitudes towards the Jews and even at times respectful attitudes towards the sages of Israel. The land of Israel saw a reflourishing of the Yavna project. So much so that different versions of the oral law in succinct form, different guides and compendiums were being composed. And it was, of course, the great figure of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, a direct descendant of the whole Gamliel Hillel line, 
and they were politically involved as well. Don't forget that Shimon ben Gamliel had sat in on the war council at the first great revolt, but they had gone into hiding for much of this century because they would have come under the whim of Roman decrees. But Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi by this time is out in the open and he edits and publishes effectively the Mishnah. The Mishnah contains, as you know, six orders, six basic divisions of knowledge. Zraim, agriculture, Moed, the festivals, Nashim, all things to do with women, Nezikin, all things to do with torts and damages, Kodashim, all things to do with holy appurtenances, the temple, the sacrifice, and Taharot, all those to do with Levitical and ritual purity and impurity. These great big divisions were encompassing, but there were many other literary compositions that were external to the Mishnah that were nevertheless preserved, but there was a huge effort to write things down. This decision of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi to write down the oral law was monumental. It is generally said, and although it's said in a sort of a, uh, um, an, uh, as a type of uh, theological apologia, it nevertheless may have some reflection of the historical reality, and that is that Rabbi, it's said that Rabbi Huda allowed and encouraged and in fact coordinated the writing down of the oral law because he foresaw that this exile was not going to have a quick and easy end, that there is now a growing diaspora, the Jewish world is becoming fragmented and dispersed, and therefore, we need this centrality of text to ensure that the traditions, are, the recorded traditions, are preserved in integrity. But it was an impactful, monumental decision, and it wasn't entirely uncontroversial. The big key point that I want to end on today, even though uh, we've had to go at breakneck speed over things, I'll remember that also uh, there are, once again, women I wanted to talk about during this period. This period sees the rise, the, the rabbis of the Mishnah, the rabbis who formulated the Mishnah were in tremendous spiritual partnerships with women. It wasn't, these women were great in their own right, but also great in terms of the way that they worked with their partners to create dogma, example, but influence as well. I'm talking about people like Imma Shalom, who was married to Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos, the sister of uh, Rabban Gamaliel, and we are, but each of these women I'll be talking about separately, women like Bruria, who was married to the r famous student of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir, Bruria, who was a tremendous scholar in her own right. So once again, I come back to this, we talk about men, we talk about the sages, but there was a collective effort to, we, we, we've lost something of that in Judaism. We've lost somehow this dynamic that when you read the literature of the Tanaitic period and you see the way that they approached Judaism in that type of great fluidity that somehow, it's not like these guys weren't, it's not like they weren't from, they, they, they created from, but it was, it, it, there was a far greater sense of being in touch with, with reality in a dynamic sense. I'm hoping that you can read between the lines of what I'm saying here. If we could somehow unlock that power within Judaism today, we would see, I think, a, a startlingly refreshing energy emerge. But at the end of that period, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi edits the Mishnah. Now, 
If you are mentioned in the Mishnah, if you are one of the great rabbis that dynamically contributed to the Mishnah through your understanding, your interpretation, your transmission of the oral law, you are referred to as a Tana. That's why we call that sub-period of the Talmudic the Tanaitic period. But the Mishnah has to end at some point. At some point, someone has to say, we're doing it tomorrow. So that what happens if you are brilliant and you are great, but you're still a bit young and you haven't actually been around long enough to actually get the title of Tana yet, you know, you were going to sit your final exams in like six months. What can I do? But they're boom. Otherwise, I'd be in the Mishnah. I'm not going to get into the Mishnah because he wants to bring it out tomorrow. And I'm not going to be a Tana until, you know, another few months. Such was the case with a very, very significant sage that I'm going to end on this because this is really what's going to launch us into next week. And that is someone who, by the time Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi edits the Mishnah, this person is only in their early to mid-twenties, a great sage, so great in fact that he's discussing things with the rabbis of the Mishnah as an equal, but he nevertheless has not been accorded the final smicha process. So he's not mentioned in the Mishnah and his, his interpretations are not mentioned in Mishnah, but he takes the Mishnah once it's completed and he goes with it back to where he was actually born originally, to this hugely dynamic community growing in Babylonia, the same place as Babylon. And now, in Babylonia, there was already a dynamic community of scholars, but they studied the oral Torah in an entirely different way. They, in, a, in an institution called, I'm um, 30 more seconds, institution called the Sidra. The Sidra was the, where we get the word Sidra. They would take each Torah reading portion of the week and they would interpret the precepts contained in it and give over the oral Torah according to that. Abba Aricha, who we know as Rav, Abba Aricha, really means long daddy, Abba Aricha, came to Babylonia at the beginning of the 3rd century with the Mishnah and brought a new technology. This was a technology of education. We are now going to study the Oral Torah according to topics. Each of the six orders is divided into a huge range of topics, thousands of small paragraphs of principles and law that are recorded that are now going to be expanded and discussed by us. And that is why Abba Aricha is the first of the Amoraim. He launches the Amoraic period by coming to Babylonia with the Mishnah and affecting that revolution that we will discuss next week. As well, of course, once in Babylonia, we're now outside the influence of the Roman Empire and a whole new set of circumstances to be negotiated. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry we didn't leave any time for q and I, I, do, I do learn, like an intelligent machine, I do learn, and therefore I'll make sure that next week our summary of the last week will be much tighter so that we are left with time to look at things properly. But I encourage you to look into any of these.